So there was a point where my engineering time was kind of wrapping up and I was moving into working kind of the business side of the company I was at. And I didn't feel like I was equipped to do the business side. So I do what I always do. I just started getting books and reading, like, what does it mean to try to help on the business side of this company? And one of the books that I never forgot because it was, I think, really good. It was this book called Execution. Great name, right? And the subtitle was this, The Discipline of getting things done. And the author took over at General Electric, so obviously top, top tier CEO in America. And he said, I've been in hundreds, if not thousands of meetings with some of the smartest people in America. Like the MBAs that they hire are top of the class, right? They're just taking the cream of the crop. And he said, I've sat there and listened to visions that are brilliant, ideas that are earth-shattering, concepts that are going to change culture and change our company, hundreds and thousands of them. And I've watched all those brilliant ideas and concepts hit a dead end and go nowhere. And what he said, he said, the number one way that you succeed, the number one way that you actually do something is by having a plan and executing it. It's not the great idea, it's not the vision, it's not the brilliance, it's the discipline of actually doing your plan. So we're on the last day of 2023. Rewind the clock one year. Did you have visions and plan for 2023? Ideas that you wanted to get done, concepts? Did you get them done? Right? I heard a guy last week that said his plan for 2023 was to lose 25 pounds. And then last week he said, I've only got 30 to go. <laughs> right? There it is right there. The discipline of getting things done. So here's what we've seen. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount for three chapters teaches on what the kingdom will look like. But he doesn't simply want to fill our minds with ideas. He wants us to execute. So we're going to conclude that series today in chapter eight, because this is what Jesus does. He executes the vision of the kingdom. And what you're going to see is Jesus living out what he had been preaching in the previous three chapters, just living out, living the kingdom. And we are going to go through the entirety of chapter eight. So get ready. Let's go. Verse one, Matthew chapter eight. When he came down from the mountain, that's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount, given on a mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Jesus, very first portrait of him living the kingdom, he brings life. 
Has anyone here ever seen a leper? I have. Um, I got the picture just so you know, this is late stage leprosy. So this is not, you can't hide this. This is not like you could keep it secret or put some clothes on to cover it. It's you would know a leper from 50 feet away. And if you're interested at all in leprosy, uh, there's a book I recommend. It's by Dr. Paul Brand. The book is called The Gift of Pain. And what Dr. Paul Brand gave his life to was to leprosy and finding the cure in India. So he worked there uh, his whole life, just brilliant. He is the guy that discovered that leprosy doesn't cause the decay of your digits and your fingers and your nose. And it doesn't do that. All it does is damages your nerves so that you can't feel. And then just because of life, you end up damaging your finger unrepairably because you can't feel. That's why the book is called The Gift of Pain. We actually need pain. It helps us. It guides us. And so he gives this kind of antidotal story about how he started like going in that direction because he'd bring these lepers into his clinic and they would do an intake form. Like, how much, do you have all 10 fingers? Do you have all 10 toes? Do you got your nose? Do you have your ear? Just an intake. And then they would all sleep in this big ward together. All the leprosy patients would. And the next morning they'd come out and they'd be missing their pinky. And they'd be like, what? So they'd go in their bed and try to look, for, where's the pinky at? And it's just gone. And this was happening enough that they finally had this nurse stay up all night in this leprosy ward and just watch. Well, about midnight, in came a pack of rats. Yes. And it's hot there. So you don't have like, you have your hands out and your toes are out and the rats would come up and they would nibble away a finger, but you couldn't feel it. So that's where they were going. How crazy is that? So from that day forward, Dr. Paul Brand would give every single leper patient when they left a gift, a kitty cat. Take it, sleep with it. It's gonna save your life, literally. So that's leprosy, brutal, unbelievably brutal. The book of Leviticus actually designated you could not live inside the town. You had to go live apart in a colony. And whenever you saw a normal, healthy human, you would declare unclean, unclean, unclean. It's the original social distancing, not six feet, more like 60 feet. Brutal, brutal. And this is what we know. We know this, that disease spreads, right? So your coworker comes to work and they're coughing and sputtering. Your the fact that you're taking ashwagandha and vitamin D and vitamin C and your reshi mushroom tea doesn't heal that person, does it? Your health doesn't spread to them. What happens? Their disease spreads. You get sick, half your coworkers get sick. You go home, your kids get sick, then your husband gets sick. And then you come here, I get sick and we're all sick of it, right? Because disease spreads, that's what it does. So that's why if you've, read through the Old Testament, you've seen that. And we have this aversion now to anything that's kind of contaminated that might be contaminated. It's just like inborn into us. So I'll give you an example. Like I built my house, plumbing, everything. I know where the, there's one water source. It goes to every single faucet in my house. But many years ago, I'm thirsty. And my son, Elijah was like 18 months old. And I'm sitting at the table and I was like, I need a drink of water. He goes, dad, I'll get it for you. So he's all cute, goes over to the kitchen counter, gets a cup off the kitchen counter, and then he can't reach the kitchen faucet. So he goes into the bathroom. Yeah, you can already feel it, right? 
So he goes in there, uh, comes, emerges out. He's got it. It's just overfilling. And he sets it right in front of me. Even though I know every faucet's connected to the same pump. I know that. Guess what I could not do? I could not drink that water. He stared at me and waited for me. I'm like, I'll pay for your counseling fund later. I can't drink this water. I was also worried because he's short that I don't think he could have reached the faucet in the bathroom. He may have gone to a different source in the bathroom. So I was kind of worried about that. But we all have that in us. This is like, this is unclean. So if in 2023, you decide to read through the Bible, which is a great exercise, you know, in Leviticus, there are all these laws about uncleanness that if you've touched a dead body, that if you have a disease, that because of those things, you're unclean. Doesn't mean you're a sinner. It's just, let's not let this thing spread because disease spreads. So if you are unclean, you touched a dead body, or you had leprosy or a disease, you couldn't go to the priest. You couldn't go to the temple. You couldn't be in God's presence because the Old Testament was making this really clear. Don't bring death into God's presence. That God did not design death Death, 1 Corinthians tells us in chapter 15, is actually an invader. That you and I were never designed to die. Don't bring death into God's presence. So you're excluded because the Old Testament makes this clear. Death is contagious. So portrait number one, Jesus has preached about the kingdom. The very first person he meets, walking dead, the walking dead. And what does Jesus do? You can make me clean. Does Jesus speak a word to the leper? No, read it carefully. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. And what happened? Did Jesus get leprosy? Did Jesus become unclean? Like all the Old Testament? No, what happens? Cleanness spreads. Life spreads, wholeness spreads. That's what just happened. So from this point forward, what the New Testament says is this, death is no longer the victor. Life has become contagious instead. Cleanliness has become contagious. That Jesus is creating a place that anyone can come into God's presence. All the lepers are welcome. That life and love and light are going to overcome death and destruction and darkness. That's picture number one. And it's brilliant. Life now is infectious in the kingdom. Portrait number two, verse five. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to him who followed him, who are the group of people that are following Jesus? Jewish people. Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Ooh. And I tell you, many will come from east and west 
and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, who would that group be? Those that thought they were in, will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. There's life and there's love. Who's a centurion? A Roman, yeah. What's a Roman doing in Israel? They're the occupying force. They had come and subjugated the people of Israel. And if you wanna read about a brutal part of history, read what the Romans did to the Israelites. Like brutal, brutal, brutal. It would be like this. I'll try to get this into context for us today. It'd be like Hamas or ISIS occupying America, driving around their Mad Max trucks, baklavas on, AK-47s, and they show up at your house and they've got somebody sick in the car and they say, hey, can you help us heal our comrade? What would you say? That's the situation right here. What does Jesus do? He heals him. Why? Because this is fulfilling something that's hugely biblical. If you go into the Bible, Genesis 12 is one of the most important texts in scripture. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. It drives the Bible. And in that, God makes these promises to Abraham, land, kids. And then he says this to him. He said, in you, all the nations of earth will be blessed. And that is repeated five times in Genesis. And then it's seen in these brilliant pictures that when the sons or the grandsons of Abraham are around Gentiles, they get blessed. So Laban gets blessed because Jacob's there. Potiphar gets blessed because Joseph's there. The Pharaoh of Egypt gets blessed because of Joseph. In fact, the entire nation of Egypt is protected and blessed because of the Abrahamic blessing. You just see it spread. That's what Genesis is saying. Brilliant, brilliant. I love that. So what God wanted for his people was this. I want you to be this beacon of light. I want you to show to the other nations that are around you what happens when a group of people have Yahweh as their God, that you're supposed to be shining that out so that they can say, wow, if that's the blessings that come from serving Yahweh, we want to serve Yahweh as well. But what happened? They turned inward. Instead of being a beacon of light going out, what happened is the Israelites turned inward. In fact, Jewish males at the time of Jesus had a prayer that they would pray. And they'd pray this, God, I thank you that you did not make me a dog, a woman, or a Gentile. So they had turned completely inward and inward focused. No longer a beacon of hope, but now ah, let them all burn. I don't care about them. That's what had happened. Sometimes I think the church can begin to get into this mentality where we turn, instead of the great commission, going to all the word and preach the gospel, making disciples of every, we begin to turn inward. It's all about us. We want our little things. So we start to invent our own little things. Like we got to have our own theme park, Jesus theme park, right? Our own coffee shops. Like a guy tried to get me to help him start a coffee shop. We need a Christian coffee shop in Grants Pass. And I asked him, I said, why? Well, he said, well, the other coffee shops are sinners. I said, yeah. 
Go there. You'll fit right in. Right? We're supposed to be in there. We're supposed to be out there. No, we're not. Well, we might catch the sinnies. You already got it. And Jesus has cured it, right? We lose the mission. We start to turn inward instead of outward, right? It's amazing. So we got to be careful of this same kind of thing that we can do. We are supposed to be, the church is supposed to be the vehicle of blessing to all nations now. We have taken that mantle. We're supposed to be doing it right now. It's good. And here's what I love. You've got that promise at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 12, 12 pages in. You go to the very end of the Bible, right? Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You go to the end of the Bible, Revelation 7, verse 9. And what does it say? In heaven, before the throne, there's every tribe, every tongue, every nation glorifying King Jesus through all eternity. It came to pass. God kept his promise. Book ends, right? All the tribes will be there. The Williams tribe will be there. The Merlin tribe will be there. The Grants Pass tribe will be there. The Cave Junction tribe will be there. Even the Ashland tribe will be there. Miracle of miracles. That's what this is. And so what you see here is Jesus showing, I'm gonna be a blessing to all nations, even the people you think are your enemies. In 2024, you wanna be blessed? In 2024, you want to be a bright light? Love your enemy. The one that you think you shouldn't is the one that you should. The centurion, that's who Jesus loves. So love, life, but there's a price to pay to get those things. Look at verse 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. Don't you just love moms? Sick, almost dead, healed, hey, let's cook lunch. Like just unbelievable. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. So remember when Billy Graham Paulos was here? Guy from India, very energetic, right? I don't know if it was in this service when he did the hallelujah and then spun a 360. I love that. I said, that's like Super Mario. I'm like, ding, 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 ding. I'm like, that's really cool. All right, so I've known him a long time. The last time I was in India, we were... Uh, at this guy named Pastor Ravi's house, which is in the southeastern corner of India, just way out in the middle of nowhere. This guy just wanted to start a church in the middle of nowhere, all Hindus around him. So brilliant guy, Pastor Ravi. So we're sitting there and Billy's a pretty serious guy, you know, especially we're on the mission field. He wants to see people saved. So I'm there and we're, and we're sitting there at, at Ravi's table and he looked at me and he said this. He goes, Matt, why did Peter deny Jesus? And so immediately I'm like, oh, okay, well, hmm, let's go theological here. Uh, well, you got Genesis chapter three, sin, you know, Romans five says we've all inherited sin. So he, he's a sinner, uh, no doubt about that. Um, he's got pride. When Jesus says, you're all going to deny me, G- what does Peter say? No, I'm not. I'm going to be one that stays strong. I'm not going to do this to you. Um, 
It could be Romans 7, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I do want to do. You know, I'm going down that road. And Billy just says, no. Peter denied Jesus because Jesus healed his mother-in-law. It's like, okay. It could be that as well. Throw that in. So Jesus heals. Demon-possessed people are brought, they're healed. Sick people are brought and they're healed. And then Matthew adds this little verse. It's verse 17. He says this, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then just this little phrase, he took our illness and bore our diseases. The Bible does this all the time. It hyperlinks back to other parts of scripture. And the reason why the Bible does that is scrolls are really expensive. Not like today where paper's cheap. It was a scroll would cost you a year's salary. So the Bible is condensed. And what you were supposed to do or what a Jewish reader would have known is they would know everything that was contained by this little phrase. Oh, that's Isaiah 53. This is what's being said in Isaiah 53. They'd have the context to it. But you and I, we don't have that. So what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to go back to Isaiah 53 and look it up because it has a bunch of meaning. It would be like this. It'd be like me saying this to you guys. Remember 9-11. Now, what does that mean to us? It's a huge thing, right? Worst terrorist attack on American soil. Subsequent war on terror. Thousands of books have been written on that, right? It's still a defining moment in US history. And I say it by just one little phrase because it's our history, it's our culture. Well, the same thing would be said of them. These guys would get this little phrase and they would understand, oh, it's Isaiah 53. Let me read it for you. Just a little portion of that song in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we are healed. What did it cost Jesus to heal Peter's mother-in-law? Everything, not just a touch, not just a word, by his wounds were healed. It cost King Jesus everything to bring in the kingdom, Isaiah 53. For lepers like Matt Heverly to be brought in, to come boldly before the throne of grace and receive help in my time of need, it cost the king everything. For the blessing to go out to all the nations of earth so that all the tribes could be gathered in, it cost the king everything. There's a price and the king paid it but there's a price for you and me as well. Look at this, verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Let's go to the other side of the lake, see a galley. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. 
Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. There's a cost to the kids of the kingdom and it's gonna cost you comfort and consecration. So a bunch of years ago, I read this book called Self and Soul by a Virginia professor, not a Christian. And it was the, the, do we focus on self or souls nowadays? He's kind of looking that. And part of the book, he talks about these students that would come in into his classes and he would talk with them and ask them questions and just try to evaluate. And he said, what he started to see with kids was the priority in life for them was to be safe and healthy and to live long lives because that's what we've been teaching them. So he started asking his students, he says, why do you want to live a long life? And they couldn't answer him. Well, just to live a long life. But why do you want to live a long time? Well, well, to live a long time. So it became very circular. Like they didn't have reasons to actually live long lives. He said, because we used to teach about the soul, that you live to grow and to be prosperous, and your prosperity is to help other people, to serve, and to assist. I would say to go into all the world and preach the gospel, that there's a purpose to living a strong, good life. And it's not the self, it's the soul, right? But he says, what's happened now is we have began to teach our kids, hey, you need to get a degree so that you can have a good job and you can be safe and comfortable for the rest of your life. And that one day you can retire. That the American dream now, I say, is to retire. That's the American dream. Something shifted in our culture. Like I've said this to Edward for a long time. Like my goal used to be, I'm never going to retire. I'm going to preach until I die. Like preferably up here. And when I die and people say, what happened to Matt? You say, well, he retired. That's what he did. Now I kind of know mentally, I don't think that's possible, but I do know this. I'm never going to retire. At some level, I'm always going to be involved in the kingdom and building the kingdom. Now that may change and shift and I'm okay with that, but I'm never going to retire. So 2023 is coming to a close. 2024 is starting. It's always a good time to like step back and ask yourself, why do I do what I do? Why do I go to the gym six days a week? Why am I working out? Is it to be safe and comfortable just to live a long life? Or is there another reason? Is it so I can be strong and healthy and help my grandkids and maybe my great grandkids know Jesus Christ to build the kingdom. Because what Jesus says to this scribe that comes to him and says, hey, I wanna follow you. What Jesus says is sacrifice your comfort. I don't have a home. So you're a scribe, you're high level, you got money. This is an educated individual. He's got his MBA. Bro, I don't have a house. If you're following me, you're going homeless. And this scribe checks out because he won't sacrifice his comfort to follow the king. If you're gonna follow Jesus, you're gonna sacrifice something. This guy wouldn't. That's the first one. Second one is this guy comes to him and says, hey, I wanna follow you, but I gotta first bury my dead dad. And what is Jesus' response to him? Follow me, present tense, right now. Follow me, let the dead bury their dead. So you read that and you feel like, Jesus, goodness, that's harsh. That sounds rude. Well, you got to know 2,000 years ago, the burial process was at least a year and up to three years. Because here's what happened. You take a dead body, you'd put the dead body in a limestone cave. Lime eats away at flesh. 
So within a year or so, the flesh is gone. You go back, you get the bones, you clean them up, and then you would put the bones in what's called an ossuary box. And maybe you remember this, about eight years ago, there was a 2,000-year-old ossuary box found that had this inscription on it. James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. Do you remember that? And it caused a big, like, is that legitimately the half-brother of Jesus, author of James in the Bible? And there's controversy about it. Very interesting, because it is about 2,000 years old. So that's that box containing bones. Took a year. So what this guy is saying is, Jesus, I want to follow you, but not yet. Let me wait a year. And what is Jesus' answer to him? No, it's now. Here's why. Every one of us suffer for when I, I call it witty syndrome. When I, then I. When I graduate from high school, then I'll follow Jesus. When I get away from these bad influences that they're kind of causing corruption in my life, you know, once I get away from them, then I'll follow Jesus. I forget that. Okay, when I graduate from college, because all those bad influences followed me to college. What, you imagine that. So when I graduate from college, then I'll follow Jesus. You know, when I get married and, and I'm with my wife and, and I have someone to sit with, then I'll follow Jesus. When I have kids and the kids need it, you know, they need that instruction and stuff, then I'll follow Jesus. Now, when I pay off my mortgage, then I'll follow Jesus. When I retire, then I'll follow Jesus. What Jesus is talking about is a syndrome that we all have. We all have a reason not to follow him, not be consecrated to him. And before we know it, life is like a vapor and it passes us by and we're hooked to tubes wondering, where'd the time go? So Jesus says, no, right now you follow me. The Bible has this term, it's called evil days. It's used a number of times. And it can be really easy to make evil days like somehow today is worse than any other time in history. And people that say that, I say, do you read history? Because it's really good right now. It's brilliantly good. Doesn't mean it won't get bad in the future, but right now, brilliantly good. You and I live like ancient kings. Are you kidding? We got it better than anyone else. Are you kidding? Like, have you read the Bible? Have you read the book of Judges? Like, gross, disgusting. Have you read that, right? Have you read Gen by page four, it's bad. Cain kills his brother Abel. Cain wipes out 25% of the world's population. Just by percentages, he's the worst killer ever, right? Evil days doesn't mean that. Read Ecclesiastes 12. Read Ephesians 5 that talks about it. Because in Ephesians 5, it says this, wake up. Evil days lull you into sleep. I'll get to it next week. I'll do it next month. And evil days just lulls you into this day after day, week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. What happened? Evil days got you. So Jesus says, hey, there's a price to pay. If you're gonna follow me, there's a price to pay. Your comfort, your safety, you have to sacrifice them. Your consecration, you belong to me. There's a price to pay. That's what Jesus says. So why would I want to follow him if there's such a price to pay? Here's why. Verse 23. And when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. There's one rule for boats. Keep the water out of it. And they were failing this rule, but he was asleep. 
And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? I don't know, the waves in the boat, the class five hurricane that we're in, I don't know. Oh, you of little faith. And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was great calm. And the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. Have you ever been somewhere where you can feel something like in that region, in that area that's so dark and so like, don't go there. So growing up, um, maybe you remember this, but on B and Clark Street, there was a house It burned to the ground, but its address was 666 B Street. Does anybody remember that? It was the craziest house. I went into it one time and like, I could feel something in that house that was, I never went back. Like my friends would dare me, come on, let's go in there at midnight. No, I choose life. You guys can go. I'm not going back into that house, right? Something was corrupt in there. I think sometimes there's territory like that. Read Daniel, the book of Daniel, where there's this power over Babylon that's so powerful, an angel has to fight for three weeks to get in. This is one of those spots, super, super dark. Jesus heads there. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? How just fascinating is that little text? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And they said to them, go. And they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Note that. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Why do we follow? There's one reason. Because he's the king. That's why we follow. So what... Chapter eight is showing us is Jesus has power over the dark storm and the demoniac. Who here can control the weather? What country can control the weather? With all of our technology, satellites that blanket, you can be anywhere on this planet and call someone else anywhere on the planet. How amazing is that? Unbelievable. Right? We carry around supercomputers in our pockets. We got chat GPT that's going to take over the entire universe, right? All these things, we got all this, but no one can control the weather. Got this massive flood in New, York, or in New England a couple of weeks ago in Maine. The blizzard on the plains last week. There was $57 billion in weather-related damage done in the United States. If someone could control the weather, they'd be the richest person on earth. And Jesus Christ, with a word, controls it. What is Matthew saying? Jesus is God. Because in the Old Testament, seas were always dangerous. 
Right? The children of Israel get out of Egypt and they come to the Red Sea and it's dangerous. They're going to die. And then God controls the weather and they're able to get across safely. Jesus is doing the exact same thing. His disciples are in danger and they're saved by him. This is Matthew's way. Like we have these arguments about why Jesus is God and we'll go all in philosophical arguments. Matthew just says, I know he's God because of what he did. This is what he did. Let me tell you what he did. So why do we follow? Why do we pay the price? Why do we sacrifice comfort? Why do we consecrate ourselves wholly to him? Because he's the king. And if he is the king, then we do what he asks, period. And the disciples end that with this saying, like, what manner of man, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? The disciples are like, who is this that's in the boat with us right now? And they come ashore to a really dark demonic spot. And what do the demons do? They answer the disciples' questions. What have you to do with us, O son of God? How do the demons know that Jesus is God. Is there a spiritual dimension that they're tapped into that they could see the light and the brightness of Jesus? Probably, because wherever Jesus goes, evil freaks out like these guys do right here. They freak out. So Jesus, the king, confronts the storm and confronts Satan and wins because he's the king. So if you step back for a moment and you look at chapter eight, Jesus is perplexing. The what he does, what he says is perplexing. He is an equal opportunity offender, right? To the centurion, the enemy, Hamas, essentially, to the occupying force. Here's what Jesus says to ISIS in their midst. He says, I haven't found faith like this. Like what would all the Jews be saying at this point? Well, I don't like that. I don't like what, you just said right there, because Jesus is saying, listen, the Genesis 12 blessing to every single tribe and every single nation is coming to pass because I am the king. Right? He calls his disciples, you, little, uh, you have little faith. They're like, what are you talking about, man? We're going to die. It's offensive. To this group of people that were raising pigs. Now, are pigs kosher? No, were Jews supposed to be touching them? No, you became unclean. If you touched a pig, you could not go to the temple. You could not make sacrifice. You were excluded, right? They knew it. It's kind of unethical, right? I know we're farmers, but we're not really farming the right thing. We're farming something that's damaging, but uh, it's good for business. And what happens? Jesus casts the demon into their pigs and all their pigs die. They're gone. And when they come to Jesus, even though they see these two demoniacs in their right mind, the power of God right there. What do they say to Jesus? Leave. Leave. Because Jesus is not their king. They say, leave. What Matthew is presenting to us is a real king, a king who does what he wants, period. And you and I can either accept that or we reject it. So Myron and I have been listening to the Chronicles of Narnia. And there's this great little section where Susan, one of the kids in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, is going to meet Aslan. And she says, is, is he a man? And this beaver answers him, no, he's not a man. He's a lion. And she's like, oh, what? Well, is he safe? 
And the beaver says, of course not. But he's good and he's the king, I tell you. That's what Matthew is telling us right here. He's good and he's the king, I tell you. If Jesus isn't your king, then when he asks you to do something you don't wanna do, to love your neighbor that you hate, to help that miscreant that you think deserves whatever they got, if he's just your buddy or just a great teacher or just cool, right? When Jesus perplexes you or makes you uncomfortable or asks you to do something you do not want to do, you will be just like these people with the pigs. I'll be just like them. Beg him to leave. Leave me alone. I don't wanna do that. Is Jesus your king? Because if he is, then whatever price he asks is gonna be worth it. Because the Bible says this about Jesus, that in him is light and life. You don't get life and you don't get life apart from Jesus. And if you are willing to follow him, if you say, okay, I belong to you, I'll sacrifice comfort, I'll sacrifice, I'll consecrate myself wholly to you, you get life and light. I remember many years ago, I was asked to go for a year to this country called Vanuatu. And I remember I heard the word and I said to myself, that sounds a lot like I don't want to. That's what that sounds like. <laughs> but I felt like King Jesus was asking me to go. And I did. That was the best year of my unmarried life. Light and life. See, in 2024, we all faced the decision. Will we follow Jesus? Will we consecrate ourselves to him? Will we sacrifice the things that we think are really important? And we do it not because he's cool, not because he's our buddy, not because we like his teaching. We do it because he's the king. That's how we do it.